Welcome to Christian Natural Health with naturopathic Dr. Lauren DeVille. Christian Natural Health is the podcast on how to get and stay healthy God's way. You'll hear topics on nutrition, exercise, sleep, avoiding toxicity, meditating on scripture, what supplements to take, stress management, defeating anxiety and worry, how to reconcile Eastern medicine approaches with Christianity and a whole lot more. Now, here's your host, Dr. Lauren. Welcome back to another episode of Christian Natural Health. Today, I am very excited to have Dr. Lorenzo Cohen and Allison Jeffries with us. Dr. Cohen is the Richard E. Haynes Distinguished Professor in Clinical Cancer Prevention and Director of the Integrative Medicine Program at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. Dr. Cohen conducts research examining integrative medicine practices such as meditation, yoga, acupuncture, and other strategies aimed at reducing the negative aspects of cancer treatment and improving quality of life. He's also conducting research to demonstrate that lifestyle changes can influence cancer outcomes. Allison Jeffries, MED, has has degrees in both art history and education with a master's degree in educational psychology. Allison received her undergraduate degree from the University of British Columbia, her teaching degree from Queen's University, and her master's from University of Houston. As an educator, she has worked in museums and as a classroom teacher in England, Canada, and the United States. As a mother of three, she is interested in how to make healthy family changes a reality for all ages. Allison is passionate about helping her own family and community engage in the anti-cancer She is focused in in the power of community networks and how this can lead to healthful change. In addition to publishing more than 125 scientific articles in top medical journals and numerous book chapters, Dr. Cohen and his wife, Allison, have published their own book entitled Anti-Cancer Living, which outlines six pillars of lifestyle change to support health and well-being and reduce the risk of cancer. Dr. Cohen is in fact living proof that this approach works as the day he finished his book, he received notice that he himself had cancer. He then lived his book and is today cancer free. Thank you. We're glad to be here. Our pleasure. So Dr. Dr. Cohen, that's so ironic that the day you finished your book, you were diagnosed with cancer yourself. What was that journey like? Well, you know, in the introduction, you said I'm living proof that, you know, what I recommend works. I guess the flip side is maybe I'm not living proof that it works because I ended up getting cancer. Uh, but my cancer diagnosis was actually of uh, a melanoma, one of the cancers that is on a precipitous rise in our society. And in fact, you know, my, my behavior uh, today and lifestyle factors today, last year, five years ago, um, isn't necessarily relevant to the original, let's call it, cause of the cancer, meaning the scorching sunburns that I had during my adolescent years, which we now know that, that five or more scorching sunburns under the age of 20 increases risk of melanoma by up to 80%, uh, a, a staggering uh, risk uh, factor. Um, but it's my behavior since then that can create a body that is either inhospitable or more hospitable for that original mutated cell because cancer starts with one cell uh, to grow and thrive in my body. Um, and that's the case, of course, for all cancers. It starts with an initial mutation and then uh, our body either controls that and brushes it aside and it doesn't cause harm or threat or 
it is it, it sort of evades all the processes that are supposed to be in place to keep things in check. Mm-hmm. At the time, actually, of you know, be on the biopsy table and and getting the results that the cells were malignant. Um, in a weird way, it was almost a relief, not a relief that oh, finally I get to experience cancer after studying it for twenty five years. But almost the relief that you know now I get to focus on myself. Now I get to to put in place even more uh, the lifestyle factors that I know are good for me, regardless of preventing and controlling cancer. Just to feel good and to uh, live my fullest life. Let's say being able to say no to more things and only yes to the things that. Uh, really matter and and are aligned with my meaning and purpose. Right. Um, that was really sort of in in a weird way that sort of raw emotional first response mm. um, was relief in in a weird way. I know that may sound weird to to yeah. some of the listeners. You know, being so embedded in cancer, I've been at MD Anderson now almost twenty five years. Um, I wasn't concerned of what comes next because I, you know, depending on the type of cancer and we didn't know that first day, um, I was at the best place in the world to, to be diagnosed with cancer and all my colleagues I knew were going to come up with, you know, the best treatment plan. Um, so, so that aspect wasn't uh, a concern and um, the biggest, you know, negative side, let's say, uh, wasn't my own mortality. Uh, it was the concern for my family and, you know, in, in breaking the news to our young children, uh, that kind of fear and, and concern that they had. Uh, and this, this sort of switched the dynamic because we had, uh, I'm an educator uh, by training and, we had been speaking to groups and giving workshops and talking about anti-cancer living for quite some time. And so we were scientists and educator, we're husband and wife. We had these roles and suddenly we were cancer patient and cancer care, uh, cancer caregiver. And so that switch um, has really just deepened our understanding and commitment to anti-cancer living uh, and what we know needs to happen. And so for me, when he got that diagnosis after my own sort of, you know, uh, taking a few freaky deep breaths, um, I, you know, took on that role of cancer caregiver and trying to support him and taking that time for himself to do the things that we know really can help you with a cancer diagnosis or to avoid one in the first place. Right. Yeah. And I love what you guys are talking about of this idea that cancer is, it, it has to thrive in the right environment. So uh, when I first started naturopathic school, there was this theory, this, uh, this phrase that one of my professors mentioned, that if you're trying to get rid of the mosquitoes in a stagnant pool of water, there's two ways you can do it. You can kill them one by one, or you can drain an arid swamp and they'll leave. So that's, that's exactly right. I love it. That's so, a nice, that's a nice metaphor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, you advocated a holistic approach even before this. What's got you started on that path before you kind of had that awareness on your own? Um, well, my trainings as a, as a medical psychologist, health psychologist, so my, my focus has always been 
um, in the area more generally of behavior, um, being, you know, uh, now a leader in the, in the broader field of integrative medicine, which of course goes beyond just individual behaviors, um, but also looking at uh, other integrative medicine treatment modalities, like you mentioned, acupuncture and, and massage and all the different herbs and supplements that can be incorporated as bioactive drugs uh, alongside conventional care. Um, kind of expanded the scope of what we look at. But fundamentally, um, and, and it didn't take very long after delving deep in, into the field of oncology, it's clear that the majority of cancers uh, are caused by or the risk factors related to the majority of cancers are within our own control, our own behavior. Um, obviously, first and foremost, we know smoking. Um, is the number one preventable uh, behavioral factor linked with cancer. Um, but the past, you know, uh, 10 years, even more so, the link between diet and exercise and, and the link between sleep and sleep quality and immune function and changing vulnerabilities to cancer. Individuals who sleep six and a half hours or less have increased all-cause mortality. Uh, as well as specific cancers. Um, and these same factors being extremely relevant after a diagnosis of cancer. Uh, patients who are struggling with mental health issues, depression or anxiety, even if it's a reactive, meaning because of their, their diagnosis, they don't live as long. Individuals who do not have uh, a good social support network do not live as long after a diagnosis of cancer. So, um, you know, early on, I wasn't necessarily practicing what we preach. So an example of this is our monthly lecture series where we bring in an integrative medicine uh, speaker from the outside and we would serve lunch and we would serve whatever the hospital uh, is on their menu. So, you know, a sandwich with different cold cuts and a bag of chips and, and you know, uh, a cookie. And that's what we're feeding people when they're hearing about how important nutrition is to prevent cancer. Right. Um, and we're sitting in a cancer hospital, and that's a whole other conversation of what we feed our poor patients. Uh, but it became clear, you know, early on that we really – need to practice what we preach all the way down to what we feed our guests when they come uh, to our lectures. So, um, you know, that, that was at an academic level, but, you know, this also was a process from, from the family level as well. We, you know, when we moved to Houston, uh, Lorenzo started working at MD Anderson Cancer Center and I was teaching and we then started a family and we realized, you know, Lorenzo would come home talking about really the interesting research going on between cancer and lifestyle that he was doing, that colleagues were doing. And I thought, well, you know, we have all of this information and we should be, you know, filling the toolbox for our children and giving them uh, skills and approaches to living that they can take with them for the rest of their life so that they can be, have some ammunition, you know, as things, life goes up and down. And, um, and so we started making changes in their life. And like Lorenzo said, we realized we weren't doing it in our own life. 
And so then we started making changes with our friends in groups so that when we got together, we would have vegan options and tons of vegetables and it became kind of a competition who could make the best vegetable dish. And so it was fun, right? And that didn't mean that you didn't have a glass of wine or it's not about taking things out. It's really important. It's about bringing new things in and they eventually push out more of the sort of the foods that aren't as healthy and so that your mainstay are the healthy foods and then you have an occasional treat you you treat yourself it to things that you enjoy so um you know that was how we evolved and started speaking um in houston and around the country and decided to write our book and then and then what kind of led to writing the book was actually initially i mean i saw in the halls of md anderson how so few uh physicians as well as other scientists really understood the the breadth and in fact depth of the link between lifestyle factors and cancer yes you know some stuff about obesity and and fiber is good uh, stress is bad but they didn't really understand you know how much data existed and when you move out of even the oncology environment to the general population, most people do not know that cancer is preventable uh, and that the lifestyle choices we make every day influence. And they, they do about diabetes, they do about heart disease to some degree, but most people think, well, cancer runs in families. Cancer is not something I can avoid. It's either random or it's in your genes. Um, and in fact, neither one of those account for the majority of cancers. The majority of cancers are lifestyle. Um, and, and we know that now, and that's very well accepted. And so what doesn't really, what didn't really exist in uh, the lay literature was a, a very evidence-based and prescriptive uh, recommendation to, to the general population on how to decrease your risk. There's no promises in any of this, but this is all about risk reduction. And, and, but to sort of counter a little bit of what Lorenzo is saying, one of the things we also talk about is that, you know, if you've smoked or if you've done whatever, you know, there's no guarantees that that is the cause of your cancer. And so it's very important to understand that it's also very important to not be beating yourself up, you know, with guilt, blame, or shame. And you have to just start from where you are this very day and move forward by making small changes. And each small thing you do and, and uh, you know, gentleness with which you treat yourself is so critical because we can't change the past. It doesn't, you know, it's not where you want to focus your your efforts, whether you have a cancer diagnosis or any of the other non-communicable diseases. Yeah, so kind of along those lines, you're, you're speaking to how toxic these negative emotions can actually be and sort of counterproductive. And you guys' clinical experience, how important would you say mental emotional health is to healing cancer or anything else? Well, you know, if, if we use a broader term, which is stress, and I know stress is kind of this catch-all term, and, and under, under the bigger umbrella of stress, of course, are more clinical terms like anxiety, depression, etc. Um, chronic stress impacts every single biological system in our body. And in our book, Anti-Cancer Living, we talk about what are, what are called the cancer hallmarks, the biological processes 
where one or more of them need to be activated to allow that mutated cell to grow and thrive in the body. And uh, what we talk about in our book, the mix of six, uh, the six areas, and, and the second one being stress management, uh, chronic stress activates every single cancer hallmark. It decreases our immune system. It increases inflammation. It, it actually, there's evidence to show that chronic stress will increase the uh, the proteins and the biological processes that allow uh, a cancer cell to break off from the primary site and float around the body, land somewhere else, find a new home, and start to grow again. That's the definition of, of metastasis. Uh, and so chronic stress activates all of these uh, processes, let alone, of course, being related to heart disease and Alzheimer's and uh, essentially... Uh, a, a risk factor for exacerbating all non-communicable uh, diseases. That's kind of the direct effect. But we also know that that chronic stress can sabotage all our healthy intentions. Um, and so, you know, within the mix of six, we we talk about social support and connection and chronic stress as the first two. And if those are not lined up, uh, then all your other uh, behaviors that you're engaging in to try and lose weight or to, to get healthy uh, are, are going to be minimized. And in fact, there's actually evidence in clinical trials showing that the benefits of a healthy meal are diminished for individuals who are experiencing unmanaged chronic stress. Interesting. And, and starting, uh, you know, we put love and support um, as the first pillar uh, to focus on. And in order to combat stress uh, and to figure your way forward, you really need to have a team around you, whether you're the person with a cancer diagnosis or you're the caregiver. You need, each need your own team. And that team of people helps you to then step forward. Because so often, like Lorenzo is saying, you're, you get sabotaged because you go to work and it's somebody's birthday and then there's drinks after work and, you know, the lunchroom. I mean, and you feel badly because you thought I was going to make a clean start today. And so what you really want to do is back up and have that social support in place where I've discussed with you, this is what I'm going to do, or I've got a good friend, or I've got somebody online. And I say, okay, these are the changes I'm going to make. I'm going to start tomorrow. And that you're partnered with somebody who is going to support you, be that cheerleader, or who is going to take it on with you to make that change. So it's really critical that you set yourself up for success because, I mean, that's what you feel great. It's positive contagion. You sleep well, you get up, you have a healthy meal, you, you know, walk around the block with your friend, you take a yoga class or you learn how to meditate. So it's all reinforcing and that's really where we function best. And that's essentially, you know, looking at these lifestyle factors with their their positive synergy together. And a lot of the research that exists in the area of lifestyle, unfortunately, is, is coming up often short. And healthcare professionals will look to the data of some dietary intervention and say, well, you know, the effect was modest, but it was a dietary intervention separate from exercise, separate from trying to, to tackle the barriers for engaging in the modified diet, which include social support, meaning if it's not a, a, 
a, a household-based intervention, it's unlikely that the target person trying to make the change is going to be able to sustain it if they don't have the whole household involved in this. If they're not managing their stress, it's likely that it's not going to be a sustainable dietary change. And something we haven't spoken about um, is that, you know, when he was unwell, I wanted to do absolutely everything that I could to help. So if that meant, you know, introducing something new to our house and all of us in our house trying to learn something new to support Lorenzo, in the process, we're also getting healthier. And so people who are around you who offer to help, uh, it's the perfect opportunity, whether you can say it or your partner needs to say it or a good friend says it. You know, these are the kinds of foods that we're, that she's really or he's really trying to to eat more of. Uh, here are four recipes. You know, could you bring one a week? So you want to you want to mobilize people to be able to support you in healthy ways. And in turn, they get to give to you and learn something new potentially. Yeah, so you're describing this whole general picture of I remove obstacles to cure, give the body the building blocks it needs to heal, and you can't separate them. I love it. Great. So tell us a little bit about the six pillars that you keep alluding to that are from your book. What are they? And you know, why did you choose those? And why are they in that order? Uh, well, just to, to list them off. So love and support, as we said, stress, uh, sleep, exercise, diet, and exposure to environmental toxins. So those are the six that we focus on. And uh, as Lorenzo talked about, we want that synergy. So the, the, you know, even though you can't attack all six of them at once, you know, um, your levels are going to be different. It's really important that you think about it as a whole. And that also takes off the pressure that if you've got one area that is really always being super tough, that you can still be doing important work in other areas until you figure out how to address Right. Your, your, you know, your most challenging area. And, and the key from, from the evidence base, and again, you know, being, being the scientists and needing to, to bring forth the evidence to uh, the community, and in particular my colleagues uh, within the field of oncology, uh, each of these six factors are related to, again, the biological processes that uh, will increase or decrease a risk of cancer. And they are, of course, interrelated. So we know uh, that most people who are trying to lose weight and get healthy uh, tend to restrict calories and exercise more, mm-hmm. period, right? They, they, they don't know that if you are sleep deprived, it changes the way you metabolize food and you can feed, and there's evidence for this, uh, two people the exact same meal the exact same calories, the person who's sleep deprived is going to metabolize that meal in a very different way and have a higher probability of converting any of that energy to fat than somebody who's not sleep deprived. So there's a direct association. We understand the biology between sleep deprivation and obesity. Uh, but you know, when was the last time we heard about a, a weight loss program that included sleep hygiene? Uh, it, it, and stress management, again, uh, you know, changing the biology of how we, how we process food. So it, it's all interrelated. And unfortunately, to the disservice of the larger community, uh, it's researched in a very fragmented way. 
Um, and so I think that that's one of the key messages we try and get across in our book is, is the inner relationship between all these factors directly for what you're trying to modify and then indirectly through how they're all interrelated. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Very cool. So, and I'm curious to know a little bit more about your pillar on environmental toxins. What do you go into for that one? Well, you know, with around 85,000 chemicals currently out there, and I don't know, last I heard, 8 to 9% that have actually been tested. Wow. We're really in a situation where it's very difficult, uh, and we have no idea what the ramifications are of all of these chemicals coming at us. And often they're tested in isolation, like other areas are tested in isolation. So when you, you know, start layering on, if you have a teenage daughter, for instance, you know, it's being said that they're getting around 100, over 160 chemicals a day exposed to them through the products that they're using. So we advocate for the precautionary principle, which is that you try and use things that you know have been found to be safe or you don't use the, anything you know that you don't need to and so you think from the top of your head to the tip of your toes you know what am i putting in so often now you feel like you need to have a phd to understand all of the products or all of the chemicals that are in something so there are a number of different apps that are available where you can scan codes and you can see at least, you know, have some knowledge about the decisions that you're making and looking for clean, you know, cosmetics and household products. So we talk about from the top of the head to the tip of the toes and then going through your house room by room. What are the things that we use? You know, what, what can I trade out as, as time goes by or I use it up? Also, if you have a diagnosis, you know, your friends want to help. This is a perfect thing. They can come into the house and you know replace your your household products with things that do not challenge the system because ultimately we want our systems to work in the most uh, efficient and effective way when combating disease and uh you know if they're laden with chemicals it becomes more and more challenging you can you can place some of these environmental uh toxins into two different categories certainly when it comes to cancer one is is a carcinogen meaning an agent that we know causes uh, cancer. And an example would be asbestos. We know it's a direct cause of uh, lung cancer. More challenging, well, and, and within those carcinogens, those carcinogens are in our food and they're in some of our beauty care products. More concerning, of course, is, is when they are uh, in the food that we eat they're controlled and supposedly they need to be below a certain level for it to be deemed as safe. But as Allison was mentioning, they uh, are typically um, studied in isolation. So one carcinogen at a certain level, and uh, there was a chemical in uh, many sodas, which was classified as a carcinogen. The, um, you know, industry essentially pushed back and said, well, but it's below a certain threshold. That doesn't sound okay to the general population that it's, it's so low that it's not a big deal. And so the pressure was so strong that they actually removed it uh, as, as a product. The concern is that we're exposed to multiple carcinogens from multiple products and nobody studied that addition. 
more challenging are the endocrine disruptors, BPA, phthalates, uh, that are in particular in personal care products, of course, in, in water bottles. Again, low levels, studied in isolation. Nobody's done the experiment to look at 120 endocrine disruptors that you're exposed to from uh, in utero through 20 years of, of development. What, what does that do? Um, and so that research, of course, will never be done. So, you know, the precautionary principle is, is really uh, the best way forward. Um, and, you know, relying on, on our, the general population to put pressure on industry uh, to clean up their act. And we have seen that that pressure from uh, the public actually can create change. Sure, but with your dollars, yeah. And also to mention, because we didn't, we didn't get into it. You know, thinking about your water, thinking about your air. You know, whether you wear your shoes into your house uh, because they've picked up all kinds of chemicals, and then you carry it all around your house. So there's lots of things that you can do to at least try and reduce your exposure. Right. Yeah. We all live in this world, but we can do little bits, little bits. Yeah. Continue not fill the bucket anymore and try to continually get rid of as much as we can. Absolutely. So, and you kind of um, alluded, Dr. Cohen, a little bit to the fact that your cancer diagnosis was a wake up call to allow you to actually start implementing these changes. So, what stopped you from doing that before since you knew all of this? <laughs> well, I mean, I'll, I'll say time. I didn't have time. And, and one of my uh, actually grandmothers, uh, who, who was a yoga teacher, one of her uh, students said, uh, you don't have time not to have time. Yeah. Um, and of course, you know, when we're just, you know, blasting forward in our busy lives, we think, oh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll eventually get to that. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not time. It's just how I, I chose to uh, spend my time. Um, and I'm not making any excuses, uh, you know, but my weak link, you know, is, is, is I believe, uh, for most people, the hardest one. We have to eat every day, so we can make a choice of this versus that. Um, we don't have to exercise, but we can multitask exercise. So I have a recumbent bike that uh, was under my desk, going for walking meetings, taking the stairs. I could incorporate um, physical activity and movement uh, into my day while I'm doing other things. Uh, but stress management, uh, stopping, meditating, doing yoga, uh, not only can you not multitask that by, by definition, uh, it, it's also not rewarded in our society. Um, you know, if I come in on a Monday morning and I tell my boss, well, my boss is, is very supportive, but if I tell the typical boss, um, you know, I spent, you know, two hours each day on, on the weekend in meditation, you know, you don't get as positive a look as if you say, you know, I worked four hours each day and, you know, the project is further along now, you know, that historically has been more rewarded in our society. Um, stopping and, and, pausing and seeking calm in your life is is not uh the western way well we also know that if if 
you're feeling that you need to be working, that by taking that time and actually stopping and spending some time, for example, meditating, you're actually more productive okay. in the time that you do have. And I think that, you know, um, for many of us who've grown up uh, in different cultures, it depends on what your lifestyle was like. You know, certainly faith and prayer is a wonderful mind-body uh, tool to use and, and part of everyday practice. Uh, but there are also things like, uh, you know, meditation, um, it, that is moves away from um, you know your prayer practice, but one of the things that happens is that Lorenzo, for instance, he you know he buckled down and he really established a yoga practice during his treatment. But once he had finished his official treatment, I really realized that I was struggling uh, at that point and needed to put into place a really solid mind body practice for myself. And so together we signed up. I asked him to join me for an eight-week course for mindfulness-based um, stress reduction, uh, you know, MBSR. Mm -hmm. And um, that was really helpful. And, it, you know, we had the time, uh, I had the time, and uh, needed to have the time to, to put that into place to be able to... And that, and that comes back to the social support aspect. Yeah. You know, one of the biggest challenges is, is accountability. Um, and it's often easier to have external accountability, particularly when you're bringing on something new or, or challenging in your life. For, for me, the only already had a yoga practice and taken a lot of, of yoga uh, lessons with my grandmother to increase accountability was to do something that maybe most listeners wouldn't do, which was uh, I signed up for a 200 hour yoga certification teacher program uh, <laughs> because I knew that would create, you know, the accountability I needed that every week in, in class, we'd have to put up our hand to say how many times we practiced <laughs> in the prior week. And, and, you know, I wasn't doing it to become a yoga teacher, but, but really ju just have that extra accountability. Sure, um, sure. And, you know, I've never, you know, felt better in my life than that year that I was undergoing cancer treatment. Uh, because I was really, you know, doubling down on, on everything that I know I need to do. Now, the hard part is, you know, now the cancer treatment's over and expectations are different from the world and most importantly from myself to myself. Uh, how do I maintain that accountability? Yeah, absolutely. So, and how do you manage to find that balance? Uh, you know, to be honest, I, I probably haven't. You know, I've certainly slipped on on the on the mind body practice uh, component. Uh, but as Allison said, you know, it, it, it's today that you start from today, and yeah. you can reset every day um, and change your expectations and and you know to set realistic goals. So I know now, you know, with uh, filling my calendar more with with other responsibilities that you know maybe that two hour every morning uh dedicated to the mind body practice isn't feasible so don't set myself up for that you know carve out 10 minutes 10 minutes in the morning 10 minutes in the afternoon evening everyone has 10 minutes and if they say they don't have 10 minutes they're not being honest with themselves <laughs> and there, there are many good um uh, either online um, audio 
meditations that you can follow. When we were teaching our children meditation when they were young, we would pick one uh, every day and they would say if they liked it or not and we kept it in our rotation and we would meditate as a family. But after Lorenzo's diagnosis, one of the things that we've done this year is that Headspace you know, has great meditations, but also on Netflix where they talk to you a little bit about uh, this meditation and then you do a 10 minute meditation together and it's all cartoon and, you know, it's a, and so we've done it as a family. So that's one of the ways in which we pieced it in before dinner that we just spend 20 minutes, you know, Mm -hmm. finding calm and then we enjoy dinner together. So there's lots of different ways of doing it that, that, and, and and back to the time issue, you know, there's 100% of the barriers that people say is I don't have the time. Uh, and the evidence here is really clear that individuals, and, and these are done in randomized trials where uh, a beautiful experiment was the study out of India that randomized medical students to a yoga program, an exercise group, or they were in uh, a usual, you, you know, do, do nothing group. And the people who were assigned to the do nothing group, were, you know, their initial reaction was, phew, now I don't have to waste my time doing yoga or exercising every day and I can study and study harder and longer. Uh, the data spoke for itself, which is the individuals who were in the yoga group actually had better grades. Uh, at that next exam. And this was a randomized study, meaning that everyone was sort of had equal academic ability in all groups. So, you know, the, the evidence is clear that engaging in, in mind-body practice, slowing down, decreasing chronic stress, improves your memory, improves your sleep, improves uh, your ability to, to multitask. Um, so, you know, it gives you more time. And and it doesn't feel like that at first because it takes a bit of time to, to reap the benefits of changing your brain, which is what happens when you decrease stress and increase calm in your life. Uh, but but you, you, we can almost guarantee you that you will have more time if you better manage stress in your life. Absolutely. Counterintuitive, but absolutely true, for sure. So is there anything I have not asked you, either one of you, that you want to make sure you leave with our audience? I think just sort of repeating that, you know, don't, don't settle on stress, guilt, or blame. Settle on where you are today and this feeling that if you do want to make change in your life, that you can absolutely do it and that you can form a team around you to make it successful so that the small steps will lead you where you want to go. Right. Yeah, and, you know, self-compassion is just yeah. critical. Uh, yeah. I remember, I, I think it was the Dalai Lama who commented when he first came to the United States, he'd never encountered uh, a population. He's encountered a lot of populations around the world who, who had such low self-worth and self-esteem yeah. at the individual level. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah. so self-compassion and, you know, taking one day at a time. Uh, and, and this is hard. You know, changing these these embedded behaviors is extremely hard, and a lot of a lot of the uh, portions of our society don't want us to get healthy, to avoid junk food, 
um, to, you know, change this aspect of our lives. So, you know, I, I believe we're on a, a very new frontier now, partly because of the evidence and the link between lifestyle and the majority of, of non-communicable diseases. So we're starting to see a shift, but still kind of going against the the vein. So it's, it's, uh, it's hard work. And so be compassionate with yourself and, and, um, you know, the celebrate the successes every day, uh, try and focus on the positive because another aspect that we haven't gotten into is, is the aspect of gratitude, um, and, and being aware of all the positive things that are happening around you. Our brains, I believe, evolutionarily speaking, are hardwired to find the negative because finding the negative, the danger, the, the, the thing that can cause threat in your environment was evolutionarily adaptive. It allowed you to get out of danger. It allowed you to predict danger so that you're not in that situation. Uh, we actually don't live, although we may think we do, we don't live in a very dangerous world relative to our hunter-gatherer ancestors. So it takes work to see the positive. And the more you see the positive, the more that you are going to to spontaneously be aware of all the good that surrounds you. Absolutely. Fantastic. So where can people go to learn more about you? Well, uh, they can visit our website at anticancer-living.com. And if they're interested in our book, Anti-Cancer Living, uh, they can find that on Amazon or wherever you buy books. Fantastic. Well, I will link to those in the show notes. And thank you guys so much for your time and your expertise. Really appreciate it. Our pleasure. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Christian Natural Health. This show is run by you. So please write in with topic and guest suggestions for future shows. For more great content, subscribe to Dr. Lauren's blog at www.drlaurendeville.com or follow her on Facebook or Twitter at Dr. Lauren Deville. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to share it with your friends and give us a five-star rating in iTunes. It really helps us to stand out so other people can discover great content as well. Have a great week and God bless you. I'm Don Hawkins, and I once heard Chick-fil-A founder Truett Cathy say, you can tell if a person needs encouragement, check to see if they're breathing. I'd like to invite you to my weekly podcast, Encouragement for You, featuring encouraging guests like Dr. Greg and Aaron Smalley, Dan Cathy, the late Dr. Frank Menrith, Josh McDowell, and more. To subscribe to my weekly Encouragement for You podcast, go to lifeaudio.com. That's lifeaudio.com.